Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Luminos. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined by my favorite co-host on the West Coast, Jason Snell. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's just me, but I'm number one in, in California. Thanks. Hi. Hi. It's good to be here. It's good to be... The other Space Coast. <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, another fortnight. Here we are. It's come and gone. Uh, so we're going to dive real deep into a bunch of current and future NASA missions today, kind of the thread mm. running through today's episode. But first, per our tradition, we have some pre-flight checklist. Couldn't tr- it, we, we almost, at one point, the show notes, it looked like it was all essentially pre-flight checklist, news updates, things like that. And then what happened, you know. The, the real pre-flight checklist appeared. That's right. It asserted itself. It said, I must, I, you must, you must uh, talk about other news. There's so much going on. It is amazing. You know, when we started this um, a year ago, it's like a year now, isn't Just it? Just about. Almost. Um, w- there was a worry that, uh, what would we have to talk about? <laughs> lots. The answer is lots. So SpaceX... Let's let's start there. SpaceX had another launch. Um, they did another experimental landing where they where they uh, this was their second uh, where they landed back because of the trajectory of the launch. Uh, they're, they're, it's a, a cargo mission to the uh, International Space Station. So this one they landed back on dry land. They don't land back at the pad where they took off. They land uh, a little further down. Uh, in the in the Space Coast area, it's just I think it's I think it's down by the Canaveral, um, like the like the Marine Base mm-hmm. or whatever it is down that's down there further south. But uh, anyway, and it was successful. It uh, and it was a night launch, so pretty spectacular. They have a uh, they have a, a a picture that they tweeted out that is the the um, time lapse, basically the the single single frame that shows the the rocket going up and then the the first stage coming back down. And then the video is also pretty spectacular because the sky sort of lights up and you see the the rocket just kind of comes down and goes boop, and then it's just sitting there. Uh, pretty fun, pretty fun to see. I, that hasn't gotten old yet. Let me tell you, Mm-mm. hasn't gotten old yet. They also keep adding camera angles. That's the thing that really gets me about the SpaceX thing is the showbiz of it. The the, the fact that they they keep uh, adding cameras or getting those cameras to to be you know switchable and 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 are transmitting at various times during the the, the launch and uh, I was I, I was impressed with that too. There's always another kind of fa- fascinating angle that they show that you think I cannot believe we're seeing this live. It's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. And they uh, the ones that always blow me away if they're deploying like a satellite or something and they're they're streaming this down from orbit just is really. Uh, yeah. fun to watch and it's just it's attached then just slowly you know satellite or the the cube satellite or something just kind of floats away to go i go was do impressed thing. when when the the dragon module the dragon capsule separated from the second stage rocket um they had a camera in the second stage at the top so you see the dragon just slowly you know slowly pull away uh very because uh, they're all you know moving relative to one another they're, they're, uh, the speed isn't th- that different. They were going the same speed, and then there's like a, I think a pyro that fires that that thrusts the the dragon forward and thrusts the pushes the 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 stage back a little bit. So there's a little bit of difference in the velocities between them, but it's very gentle. And as the as the dragon capsule pulls away, 
what a look from the second stage looking up at the capsule as it leaves them behind it's that's crazy wild stuff so so what's uh what's this news that that uh, it broke what yesterday a couple days ago about their their needs for increased landing capacity <laughs> Yeah, so Elon Musk uh, did this tweet, and then there was a link to a story from the Orlando Sentinel, and it's pretty wild because so so they're the Falcon Nine is what ha- they've been shooting off for the most part, but they're they're gonna fly Falcon Heavy for the first time later this year, much larger, more lifting capacity. Um, it's a it's a it's a big step for SpaceX. It's going to give them access to other kinds of stuff that they can that they can launch and into uh, uh, to other places. So. Um, it has, I think what Musk said is it has three first stage rockets on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of the deal of having the heavy, uh, the heavy rocket. It's these three first stages that all fire and, uh, and, and, and at once on launch. Uh, and so what Sp- the Sentinel story, the Orlando Sentinel story is, is that SpaceX is looking for approval for two more of these uh, rocket return pads, like the one that they landed on last week, because, of course, they're going to try to bring back all three of those first stages separately, but simultaneously. Talk about good TVs. Which means that instead of having one rocket coming back and landing on the ground or on a drone ship, because they're also going to do that, um, there will be three all doing it at the same time. It's going to be which is a uh, wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is it's all automated, so it's not like um it's more difficult in that way. Uh I I imagine they've got some issues in terms of the traffic control of like how do they get the separation between them so they're not interfering with each other and they've got different, you know, different burn lengths in order to separate them out so that they're landing in different areas. But uh and they I don't know how many drone ships do they have. They're going to have to have some more drone ships if they're going to do it on the water. But um but still, it's just the idea that you're going to have potentially three of these things coming down to a landing simultaneously at the end of a Falcon Heavy launch. It's pretty pretty wacky, but that's what they're planning. I mean, it's it's uh, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about when they moved to the Heavy what they would do with this. I've known that it was basically a lot of their Falcon rockets tied together, but it's really going to be spectacular to see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I You know, this was the first I had heard about it, like you. I, I hadn't really thought about it, but they're very... Uh, they're up on it. It's... Uh, it's uh <laughs> and these sonic booms apparently the uh, the landing that happened uh last week there were there's a sonic boom and there's the question that they asked about these was uh, does that mean they're going to be three sonic booms and the the spokesman from SpaceX was like yeah or one big one yeah it's like yeah you live next to the space center it's going to happen yeah i saw that part of the the press conference afterwards and he, you know he made a comment about the space shuttle like people kind of just got used to it and maybe People just kind of need to get used to it again if you live in the area, yeah. but it was kind of funny. Yeah. The shuttle, when it landed at Kennedy, was the same. Yep. So, uh, there's also a story uh, over on 538, which is not yeah. a site that I read for space coverage. <laughs> I know. Me neither. Uh, but a really fascinating story about the um, the data transfer from Juno back to earth so we spoke about it last time in our juno special about how long it takes it's using the deep space network which we should dive into in a future episode because it's really pretty interesting um but it's this like article with uh some interviews and some quotes from people who 
make all of that work. It's pretty neat. Yeah, and the limited, if you're thinking in terms of computer stuff, like Juno has four gigs of RAM. Um, their uh, storage that they get is two gigabits, not two gigabytes, two gigabits. So that's an eighth of two gigabytes. And their communications system's maximum data capacity is 25 kilobytes per second, 25K BPS, which is, you know... A lot slower than like a modem yeah. was back in the old modem days. Uh, yeah. So, and that's on the good network. On the on the on the on the bad network, it's much much slower than that too. So, lots of challenges. Um, and they talk about how Juno Juno's orbit, um, because they are uh, sort of swooping in to collect data around Jupiter, and then it moves back out. And there's time. They've got it sort of set up in that way, where they collect all the data and then they stream it back, and they collect more data and they stream it back. But different spacecraft have different profiles like new horizons needed to capture everything and then slowly send it back juno has a has a different profile because they can capture and then transmit and then capture and then transmit and uh it's just it's a fascinating technical problem about how you get uh that all that data beamed back to earth and so it's a fun little story from from uh uh maggie coerth baker uh who's a science writer at 538 yeah, I'm gonna have to keep an eye on this uh, this column over here. They got a lot of good stuff in here. I just had never come across it. I read 5:38 for politics and sports, and I never clicked over to the science and health tab. Yeah, I know, I know. It's uh, it's good. They've got they've only done a handful of stories, but uh, but it's a it's a smart site. And I'm uh, I mean, obviously they're doing a lot of election stuff now because that's how Nate Silver made his name eight years ago. But uh, there's uh, lots of good sports and other uh, kind of math and science stuff on there too. So you wanted to talk a little bit uh, more about space journalism, particularly a story over in Ars Technica about Jimmy Carter and the shuttle program. Yeah. So Eric Berger wrote a story on Ars, um, and Eric Berger is a uh, he's 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 been writing about space for a long time. He knows a lot about it. He's just a, a very knowledgeable writer. Um, and this story is headlined "A Cold War Mystery: Why Did Jimmy Carter Save the Space Shuttle?" And it's an interesting story. I I mean, the, the short version of the story is basically like um, Jimmy Carter was never really a fan of space. And yet when it came down to it, the shuttle was having all sorts of program overruns, lots of cost problems. A lot of Democrats were saying you should get rid of it. His vice president, Mondale, had had famously railed against funding uh, uh, human space flight. And uh, yet... At uh, at a critical moment in the future of the space shuttle, Carter authorized not just like continued budgets, but like emergency extra allocation to get the shuttle basically running. Mm-hmm. And so I think the question was, how did that come about? And the impetus for the story, and this is where the the people Eric Berger knows and the access that he's got, just it's from a journalism standpoint, it's really fascinating. He he said, you know, he's talking to chris Kraft, who was the the like the flight director at johnson space center during um like the apollo and uh and and through the 70s um and he says hey here's a story i, I bet you've never heard they're just hanging out and and and, and chatting yeah shooting uh, the breeze. as you do sure but the story the story is he says basically what i heard is that um 
they were asking for more money right after Carter came back from talking to Landon Brezhnev about the SALT Treaty, the Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty. And uh, and what, what they heard was that Carter had bragged to Brezhnev about how they were going to be able to fly the space shuttle over the Soviet Union to monitor that they were complying with any arms agreements that were made. Hmm. Uh, and then they, and then somebody comes to Carter and says, the space shuttle's really having a hard time. We need money. And Carter's like, hmm, well, I just told Brezhnev. So yeah, I guess we need to build it after all. That was the story, right? And that that's an interesting story unto itself that Chris Kraft has this story. But Eric Berger's a good journalist. So he's like, all right, let's try to nail it down. Um, so the story goes into details about Carter being kind of like apathetic about space, like more skeptical about space than uh, than maybe any other president in the, in the, in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and 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 why there were the cost overruns, uh, but the thing that I, I told you before we got started that really impressed me is that as a journalist is really this is a story based on about two sentences, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you got to applaud Eric Berger for doing all the research and getting those two sentences. He got because again this is history. Jimmy Carter is still alive, yep. so uh, he went to the Carter Center. And again, connections, I think he ends up to the director of research at the Carter Center and says, do you have any information about that? And they look at it and they look at Carter's schedule and like, when did he meet with Brezhnev and when did he meet with the people from NASA about the budget, all of that. And then like, there are a couple places where it might have happened. And then they go to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and that's the best part. And Jimmy Carter, you know, confirms that. And, 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 and in a couple of paragraphs, which I also love are quotes where they end with Carter told ours, yeah. <laughs> which is just a great moment of like, yeah, uh, Jimmy Carter told me this, yeah. like directly. This is me. Which is pretty he cool. Told this. It's pretty great, right? And, he, and he's like, yeah, I did talk to the... Uh, I did talk to the Soviets about the shuttle. I told them it would be peaceful. It wouldn't carry weapons. It would always land in the United States. Um, but uh, he is he is basically saying yes. The the shuttle came up when I uh, when I, I I talked to Brezhnev, and I was enthusiastic about um, about the shuttle, even though he wasn't enthusiastic about uh, sending people. Uh, in general, like to Mars or anything like that, he thought that was not a bad way uh, to to continue NASA's work and not waste all the money that already be invested in the shuttle program. So I'm not like super enthusiastic about it. And and I just I thought it was like a fun little bit of history. And I love the fact that in the end, after all of this work, uh, to, to have this question about like what happened with NASA funding in the in the Carter administration in the 70s, that in the end um, they got Jimmy Carter to give him a couple of sentences about his recollection of that that moment in time that's just that's really fun that's a great story it is people sh- people should read it it's a it's just a there's a lot of detail in there about the 70s at nasa and how the government works and it's good stuff really good stuff so today like i said we're going to talk about some mission updates and we're going to start with uh, new horizons and there'll be a link in the show notes to the nasa 2016 senior review of operating missions it's a very it's like a three or four page thing uh kind of walking through the missions and their status and how management thought about them uh so we're gonna start with new horizons uh the mission extension so if you remember 
way back. In fact, it's been a year. We're going to get to this. It's been just about a year since the New Horizon flyby at Pluto. And it was a conversation of where can New Horizons go next? And there were a couple of Kuiper Belt objects that were on the table. Uh, one was chosen, uh, known as 2014 MU69. The mission to, to get there involved some uh, maneuvers on the part of the spacecraft. Those were actually made back in the, the end of the fall. So New Horizons is, is on its way, even though the mission was sort of just now green-lighted. So they went ahead and made the trajectory moves while they still could, hoping that they would have funding to do the science once they got there. If not, they would just fly on by without <laughs> without recording anything. But MU, MU-69 is, like I said, way out in the Kuiper Belt. It's, it's so small and it's so far away. It's Seeing it from Earth is actually very difficult. Uh, the images I saw were all from the Hubble telescope, and even from Hubble, it's just a speck. Like, there's no detail, there's no real information about it. It's just this moving speck across the sky. In fact, New Horizons won't be able to see it until October 2018. So this flyby is scheduled to take place on New Year's Day 2019, and it's not going to see it until a couple of months before then. And it's only like 45 kilometers, about 18 miles across, Not a not a very big object. Isn't this amazing? It's like the mission to the unknown. Like, we know there's something there, and that's it. That's it. That's all we got. Yeah, it's just, it's a it's a, a flying rock, and we're going to intersect it. Yeah. It's no, it's what's known as a cold classical Kuiper Belt object. And Kuiper Belt objects are split into sort of two big buckets, if you will. And even, like, the where those buckets meet, there's overlap and confusion. But the cold classical uh, objects are thought to be left over from the creation of the solar system. They have very low inclinations in their orbits and the orbits are near circular. So they're not they're not pushed out from Neptune. They're not in in any sort of resonant orbit with each other or with Neptune. Uh, they're this debris on the outer edge of the solar system slowly, very slowly circling the sun. And it could be that this is, you know, this very cold little rock is a true relic of the, that formation. But scientists think because of its smaller size that maybe it's a fragment of something bigger that had a collision with something wow. else. So a larger object that struck one, and this is you know part of that debris field. So is it the detritus of the formation of the solar system, or is it the junk that was left over after everything was smashing into one another? Right. But that's why you go look at it. And we've never seen one up close, so it's, it's going to yeah. be lots of, of new science going on. Um, like we said, this was... This object was chosen back in the fall in September. And what's, what's interesting is that this, this will be the first time that a spacecraft has passed by a target that was not discovered by the time the spacecraft launched from Earth. <laughs> so we didn't know about this object until after New Horizons was already underway to Pluto. Isn't that wild? Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, I always thought that their idea... They often talk, talked about what happened after the Pluto flyby, and they would say, well, you know, Maybe we'll intercept another Kuiper Belt object after that. But that, I mean, that was literally, it's like, yeah, maybe we'll see what's out there. Right. And and that was their attitude was, I think they knew, right. I mean, certainly they knew how much leeway they had, like right. where could they steer to? What, what was the expanse of space that they could reach with New Horizons after Pluto? And then um, what were the chances that there would be something 
that they could rendezvous with. And I think that they felt they may have even had something that they were thinking of. And then this thing got discovered and they're like, oh, that's even better. But regardless, um, it is kind of interesting that they were, you know, it was not the primary mission. And it was always just sort of a let's keep this in mind. And in fact, we mentioned on a previous episode that they they steered here before they got the funding mm-hmm. to go there because of just the the physics of it. They had to aim at that point before they got the money to actually do the work because that's just how it works but they they, they got the authorization so it's fine they, and people keep their jobs basically and they get to keep uh you know working on this and and they get funding to continue that's sort of how the the whole nasa system is set up but uh it's pretty great because this is a truly uh you know uh, an, an unseen object other than like a pinpoint. And uh, if Pluto told us anything, it's that there's a whole lot to learn um, by flying past these distant objects and taking their picture because the amount of uh, of information gathered from the Pluto flyby is tremendous. And again, that was just a few hours mm-hmm. around a single object. So here's another object. It's pretty great. Yeah, and it's exciting. Like we said, it's the first time we've seen one of these objects up close so right this is the part i mean this is in some ways the most interesting um astronomy in the solar system in the last couple of decades has been in the kuiper belt and the this is where we've discovered this is i mean this is the origin of the whole debate about whether pluto is a planet or not is because of the discovery of other large kuiper Mm -hmm. belt objects and and there's been so much out there that that's been investigated from earth but we you know we haven't flown to it and new horizons was already kind of on the way like you said on the way to pluto pluto before these discoveries were even made like pluto was still firmly a planet when new horizons was launched it was um and so this is great because it's even more important that we've got a, a a an instrument out there that's capable of investigating this stuff so it's really exciting to this is you know just when you think that that uh, oh we've learned everything there is to know um science always shows us that we're wrong (laughs) it's great and so this this news comes uh about a year since that pluto flyby it was july 14th uh 2015 there's a link in the show notes to a nasa page talking about some of the like the top 10 discoveries at pluto but i think you already touched on the one that has really stuck with me for the last year is that that Pluto is a whole world that we just didn't know anything about and that we thought would be one way and and maybe thought would be sort of boring or featureless. And really it's this whole ecosystem out there of this world and its moons and the interplay between them. And Pluto has all these features we didn't expect. And like that, just that sense of discovery is what's really stuck with me as opposed to like one very specific thing or another, just that, that Pluto has this story to tell is something that we would never would have heard if New Horizons hadn't hadn't flown by a year ago. Yeah. The artist conceptions, I don't know, you remember this as a kid, the artist conceptions of Pluto were always like it's just like a snowball mm-hmm. or it's a rock. Mm-hmm. I think originally it was more of a rock and then they thought, oh well, it's maybe it's more of a snowball. And it turns out to be um and I've on the moon draft, I complained about how some some and and when I was talking about Mercury and running down Mercury and made all the Mercury people mad at me. Oh yeah, it's like the most boring objects in the solar system are these dry rocks that ha- are covered in in craters and they've just been kind of lifeless and they, and and cratered for a long time. They're not that interesting. They're still interesting in their own ways, but they're they're like the least interesting in many ways. And I think, you know. Who knew that Pluto was going to be so not that, that it was going to have young terrain 
a young smooth surface in in some places and other like weird terrain in other places just and, and it goes to show you again that uh that uh there's a lot of of detail in the solar system and uh you you expect to be surprised right yeah so i doubt i doubt that this new object is going to be a featureless blob right <laughs> I, I think i think it, that's unlikely and and for me uh, New Horizons will always be tied with us starting this show. It was it, yeah. we're about eleven months old. I think we have like two more episodes or one more episode till our anniversary. But the this was going on like this was the story. I think when we recorded our first our first call together about space. when we did the episode our episode zero, which was like released as a B side because we didn't have a podcast yet. That was uh you know New Horizons was the number one thing on the agenda and yeah and, that, and then as we uh as we went along we kept talking about it. so yeah it's definitely that's that's sort of how we started was talking about new horizons yeah that's cool it's a it's a great it's been a great mission i mean i'm really looking forward to some of the the detailed stuff that is next up on the agenda is all the juno stuff from when it starts making science mm-hmm. orbits but um but there's just so much from new horizons yeah. it's been a really great year so so, data. so let me ask you this not to not to talk down about uh 2014 mu69 but pluto was a hit <laughs> Right, like these pictures yeah, that came yeah. back that fir- that first wide picture that came back that just I think you know you said as your wallpaper for a long time still there still there um, still my wallpaper mm-hmm. Pluto really captured the imagination and the hearts of a lot of people is that is some is that something that they have to consider when when looking at twenty fourteen mu sixty nine I mean clearly yes the science is the first thing and that's what is important but all of this like we've talked about countless times over the last year. So much of New Horizons did so well publicly because the PR was good. Like, how do they follow that? Well, I, you craft a new story, right? I mean, we 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 both are are kind of in this business too. I, I had this conversation with a bunch of uh, student journalists um, last week. I was in this uh, uh, like summer session that they're taking a class out here in San Francisco, um, and. Uh, we talked about like storytelling and how that's a thing that kind of unifies. Like when you do journalism and PR and and other kind of communication stuff, in the end, you are trying to craft a, a story, whether it's your company's story or message or your government's or, you know, or you're trying to uh, do your best job as a journalist to relay the story of what you think is actually going on regardless. Um, and, and I th- was thinking about that when you were talking about this, because New Horizons pluto mission so carefully crafted not only i mean the mission's there for science but the storytelling that went into it was so well done and now they have to change their story i mean i I, because that was a story about uh you know first off pluto is a planet (laughs) which was simply alan stern's thing is like pluto is a planet and mike brown says no and then alan stern says yes it is um and and people have like fondness for pluto they grew up thinking pluto was a planet um MU69, right? Meh. It's going to be a different story. It's going to be, they're going to start having to tell the story of what this object is. And we just discovered it. And it's part of this, like like you were saying, icy out, you know, outer edges of the solar system. Uh, is it a relic of the beginning of the formation of the of the solar system? Is it evidence of, you know, the early days of the solar system? They'll, they'll tell that story. And then the pictures, I imagine, will probably be spectacular. Uh, maybe not as spectacular as Pluto, because Pluto's pictures were truly amazing. But, uh... You know, that that's it's never going to be Pluto, right? It's a smaller object. It doesn't live in the minds of people, uh, but it still has the opportunity to be a uh, a spectacular story of a different kind. 
know, someone in the chat room is, is saying, you know, NASA's problem isn't telling a good story. It's that there's so much time between stories because <laughs> space exploration is slow. And I think, I mean, you got to get the, that's why you got to get all the missions going. This is what right. um, Emily Lakdawalla was saying is the problem is not that we don't have missions going on now. The problem is that we're about to enter this hole where there are no new missions for a while or the missions are in transit, even if we've got them. And that's the problem, right? I mean, it, it, ideally, you would stage these missions um, so that you've got new, new missions happening all the time. And and yeah, I mean, one of the brilliant things about New Horizons, and it was it was done this way, not not sort of like for the PR value, but it had it was the transmission rate is so slow that they've got new data every week for a year, <laughs> and that that's you know different than that. I mean, Juno will actually have a little bit of that where it'll be able to transmit new stuff. Uh, every two weeks when it's in those science orbits and and that's that's good again it comes from the science but you can craft some some information drop and storytelling drop out of that yeah so that that's that's what's going on new horizons so january 1st 2019 we'll have some follow-up yeah yeah that's right it'll take it's a long way it, it's these are very distant objects, right? I mean, Pluto took a long time to get to Pluto, and it will take a long time to get to this next object. It's just very, very far. Yeah. Out. In fact, I'll put a link in the show notes for a a page of where is New Horizons. It's already like three hundred million miles past Pluto, and has a long way to go uh, before it intercepts this Kuiper Belt object. So it takes time to get places. Yeah. It does. Turns out. All right, so we're going to talk about a couple more things, uh, but first I'd like to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by Luminos, the all-in-one mobile astronomy app for the iPhone, iPad, and even the Apple Watch. Luminos is built by Wobbleworks, and it's been in development more than a decade. And Luminos brings the power of desktop astronomy programs right to your mobile device. It's in its sixth year of free updates, um, and they announced earlier this year Luminos version 9. Version 9 brings you the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile devices. Um, it, it completes the UCAC4 with up to 113 million stars. It's a bunch of stars, Jason. What's really cool is you can choose, choose your catalog. Uh, so you can fit best for like your needs, what you're interested in, your storage, and then download it with a single tap. You can even augment the catalog with free supplemental data. So you can bring in things like proper motion to to supplement what you want to see and what you want to do with Luminos. Luminos 9, of course, supports the latest iOS features like split screen, multitasking on the iPad, spotlight search, and the Luminos app for Apple Watch uh, got updated for watchOS 2, making it faster and more reliable. Wobbleworks is a family business with, with more than 50 years of software experience, and they've crafted Luminos to delight current astronomy fans and to create new ones. The app includes things like detailed planet and moon maps, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, that 113 million stars, a wireless telescope control, and more. You can find out details at wobbleworks.com. You can also find them in the uh, iOS app store. Thank you to Luminos for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. I have some luminous follow-up too. We had a listener who tweeted at us a few days ago um, that I I, uh, I have promoted the the TV show and the uh, book series The Expanse in various places, various podcasts, and all of that. Um, and this listener 
said that uh, so the expanse series is set in the outer solar system for the for the most part and they and uh and this listener said i'm using luminos as a map while listening to the audiobook of leviathan wakes from the first book in the expanse series uh which is really a great idea like where where are these different locations in the outer solar system and uh this listener is using luminos for that to like orient where these different places are in the solar system that's pretty cool that's very cool so, what's up next, Jason? Dawn. Uh, there were lots of rumors. I actually, I caught the tweet and it was deleted. Emily Lactawala, again, she tweeted a thing showing this blog post that said that the Dawn spacecraft, which is currently at Ceres in the asteroid belt, it's a, uh, Ceres is the, what, biggest asteroid? It's it's round. It's like a dwarf planet under those, uh, under those uh, definitions. Um, this blog post was like, we're going to use the remaining propellant in dawn to fly to a different object mm-hmm. gonna go see another asteroid that'll be fun Tur- and turns out uh yeah it turns out and then she deleted it because the post went away and she had taken like a screenshot and to, to the picture of it i thought it was breaking news it turns out what happened was they didn't know in that group they didn't know what was going to get authorized whether it was stay at series and do more uh to do more work or go and sort of like take a shot at at, at uh, going past another asteroid and doing and, and observing a new body. And there was a real debate apparently about it scientifically because some people feel like they've gotten all they can out of Ceres um, and there's not a whole lot that's there. And if you go to a new, if you fly by a new, a different asteroid, you're going to get more data by doing that just because it's a new object that you haven't you haven't seen close up before and the uh, and so that was a debate they 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 built the web pages basically for this other decision to go to uh, an asteroid called ediona and uh they said no we're staying at we're staying at series so that 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 was a draft website of an option that they didn't take but uh so instead it's gonna keep uh hanging on and they said that it's uh it's a good thing to stay at Ceres because it's getting to perihelion, so where it's closest to the sun, and they think that that might um, that might be more interesting to observe Ceres at perihelion than it is to fly past the other uh, the other objects. I, I see the disappointment here that it would be fun to see another asteroid belt object up close, but this isn't the end of what Dawn is doing, right? They're not just shutting it off and walking away. No, they're gonna keep they're gonna keep watching it, but there's there's this feeling that um that maybe they've they would have learned more. I get the sense. I mean, the way the way that Lauren Grush describes it in the Verge article that she wrote about it is uh, that the engineering team had hoped to send it to this other asteroid. And I actually wonder a little bit if this was a decision where the 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 technical people are like, "Oh, we could totally do that," and then the management's like, "Yeah, that sounds like maybe more risky." then we're willing you know we're willing to uh to to engage with at this point maybe we should just let that go and stay where we are and learn more here um but i i wonder about the the politics of it but um regardless it's going to stay around series which is a really interesting object right it's 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 got a lot going for it in addition to its size and and the fact that for a while people considered it a, a full-on planet before it got it kind of demoted to an asteroid which is kind of unfair because it's a more inter- it's not like a little rock floating around it's a it's a fairly interesting small planet shaped object um and it looks funny too it's got that it's got that big reflective bright spot yeah it's it's very uh unique right i mean you see pictures of it you're like what 
what is happening. Yeah, it's got this. It's got this. Uh, like uh, that looks like an optical illusion. Like in the middle of this crater, there are like some lights shining, mm-hmm. but it's it's actually uh, not that. It's it's the reflective material that is that is on the surface there. It makes it a high, a much more highly reflective area than than uh, other parts of the of the of the, the minor planet, the asteroid, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting object. So there's, I, I, I can see both arguments here. I, I think the the space exploration fan in me likes the idea that they would use all of their propellant that they've got left to do a wacky orbit that ha- that lets them pass by another object that we haven't seen close up before. That's a fun story, but you know, I don't know the details here. It may well be that although it's a fun story, the prudent thing to do was to stay where they were. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I agree. Um... It's just uh, it was that really notable for that sort of uh, mix-up. I think you don't see that sort of slip-up very often from them. No, I was surprised that somebody pressed the wrong button. <laughs> yeah, the big red button in the CMS they hit accidentally. Um, that bright spot. Just while we're here, uh, and again, this is a topic that I think is worth a, a larger discussion at some point. But you know that wasn't known before dawn showed up and it's still just now being understood about what that is it could be that they're carbonate materials and maybe even coming up from from the interior of the asteroid meaning that perhaps the interior is warmer than previously thought it's also like water ice being you know popping up in in some of its craters so again a world you know a place a destination in the solar system that has a lot more going on it's a lot more interesting than it might just seem on the surface and until we get there until we study it we just don't know we'll hang out we'll hang out we'll hang out a little longer yep. yeah uh so we're going to wrap up today talking about the mars 2020 rover uh, Ooh. we haven't we haven't really gotten into the mars 2020 stuff all that much sort of the short version is that it is well it's you know it's 2016 so we got, we got plenty of time <laughs> 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 it's the next generation Mars rover. It will launch in 2020, hence the name, land in 2021, and hence, hence not the name. It's not the name. <laughs> um, and it okay. it is all about all the science. All the experimentation is really built around trying to find signs of past microscopic life on Mars. And if you look at pictures of this thing, it is it looks like an upgraded Curiosity rover. That that is more or less what it is. They're using that platform again they were going to mm. land it the same way um with the 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 airbags and the sky crane and <laughs> that whole yeah apparently it's uh you know the landing system is just the same except uh which was what did they call that like five minutes of terror or yeah something like that um they, they but they've enhanced it a little bit they've got a uh they've got a range trigger so they can um they can say where they want the parachute to open they said so um it 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 allows them to cut the the potential landing area in half which means that they can actually land in a whole lot uh more areas including more rugged sites which are more interesting right those are the more rugged terrain is probably the more interesting geology for them to study but uh you also need to land intact so they've done they've done these uh they've done this upgrade to the landing and then they've added some um some uh terrain relative navigation it says but it basically means like when they're coming down um they can they're taking pictures and it it will be able to analyze on board like where am i going am i going to a an unsafe location and it can it can divert so there's it's going to be a lot smarter 
as a lander, even though it's using the same uh, sky crane approach as the as the Curiosity did. Mm-hmm. And this is in the news. the The announcement this week is that NASA is ready to move forward with the final design and construction. So they've been looking at the. Um, obviously the landing and everything you spoke about, but also looking at what instruments they want to take and, and what cameras to upgrade. And there's a whole new um, system on board to store samples. So the big thing here is that they could store samples and they could be collected in future missions, future crewed missions to, to Mars and then return those samples to earth, which of course would be a first. And so there's all of that is built in on this rovers. How do you store samples? How do you, you know, keep them uh, safe from harm waiting for a crew to show up at some point so lots of new stuff fitting onto this platform that they've used before Um, and all that is now in the final stages of design and we'll start seeing uh, assumedly before too long um, beginning images of the construction process itself of the rover i was assuming that it's not just a it's not just a crewed mission but it's a a sample retrieval mission where they could basically land a land something that would then that would then take back off because of course everything we've landed on mars stays on mars right, right? it doesn't it doesn't return but if, in a sample retrieval mission one of the ways you do that is you land and you like drill and pull that stuff in and then you take off again but what's cool about this and i don't know if this is also in the planning stages is um they they set up their sample retrieval stuff and then they land a, a return rocket somewhere in the range of mars 2020 and it drives over unloads its sample and then that sample shot back up right so in the end it may be that the the plan is that mars 2020 is going to be um it's it's collecting the samples for the sample return mission even though the sample return mission hasn't been built yet (laughs) Uh, but what that the advantage of that is it'll have samples from all over instead of uh instead of just like where the sample return mission landed uh, and and we've seen the resilience of these rovers. They can go a long way. They can go like, yeah, I, th- I think like twenty or thirty miles at this point. Um, and so if that holds, that gives them the option. Yeah, five years down, and they last a long time, right? So it's like in five years from from uh, then, like twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six, they land a sample return rocket nearby, and uh, and it 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 goes over with its stuff and says, hey, I got this for you. That'd be cool. It'd be real cool. So, oh, and they're going to take video of the parachute. Mm-hmm. That's another and <laughs> and and, uh, and audio. They're going to have a microphone and they're going to have video of the parachute, which they always say it's like, oh, it's good for science. It'll help with the physics of how parachutes work on Mars. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure that's the <laughs> reason why. But yeah, there's a quote on the media there'll site. Be para- there'll be video of parachutes on Mars. Yeah. Come on, there's a quote on the media site. It's like it's also make for good TV. <laughs> but again, it's part of it. The PR game is yeah. a big part of it. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we'll have links uh, for March 2020 and all this other stuff in the show notes. You can find those this week at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 25. Happy anniversary. If you want to get in touch, you can go to that that page. There's an email link in the sidebar. There's a link to the Tumblr, which is liftoffpodcast.space. You, of course, can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoffpodcast.space. Jason is at JSNL, and I am at ISMH. Until next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Adios. No! (laughs) (sighs) Goodbye.